the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There are memoirs, and then there are memoirs, the kind of retelling that moves you to your core and makes you think of all the ways in which random hope and kindness and tragedy wind together to form our experiences. Zane Asher is a CNN host and author of Where the Children Take Us, How One Family Achieved the Unimaginable. She joins today to share the wrenching, heart-strengthening story of her family. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Grief and pain can break us as individuals. But they can also break us open. On the one hand, tragedy can forever damage us and make us feel smaller and more afraid. But It can also move us to take new risks and seek the more meaningful aspects of life, more connection with community and friends, more investing in others beyond ourselves. Tragedy and struggle have the capacity to change us in ways that we often don't really imagine. Now, of course, I don't wish suffering on anybody. But it's interesting to watch how it changes people because it raises just a lot of different questions about how to experience life and when it sometimes becomes necessary to do things a little differently. What do you change when your home or community has suddenly been removed or taken away from you? How do you manage that loss? And what do you do to prevent tragedy like that from defining you in a negative way? These are all questions that CNN host Zane Asher writes about in her new memoir, Where the Children Take Us. One of the things that's really interesting about this story, though, is it's not really about her. Instead, It centers on the life of Zane's mom, how she struggled through loneliness and despair in the UK after the death of her husband. At that time, Zane's mom had to raise several kids and run a pharmacy all on her own in a country she had only recently immigrated to. And somehow she managed to do all that with love, respect, and a deep devotion to her kids. To explore with us how she managed tragedy and what kept her going in difficult times, we've got Zane Asher here with us on Detroit Today. Zane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for such a beautiful uh, introduction. Oh, no. Thank you for the book, which inspires that introduction. Uh, <laughs> it really is It really is uh, a, a very, very moving piece of work. Um, so as I said in the open, you you wrote a memoir, and it is clearly a memoir, but really it's a book about your mom. So tell me why you wrote this for her and why you felt inspired to write about her and about your life through so much of her lens. Well, um, a few reasons. So I began sort of toying with the idea of writing a memoir, not just a memoir about me, but about my family in particular, as you mentioned, my mother, when I turned 36 years old and I gave birth to my first child. And um, that was the age my mother was when her life changed uh, forever. Um, And obviously you've read the book, so you know what happened. But just to sort of recap um, for the audience, uh, my mom was living in London with us, obviously her kids. And um, she is waiting for a phone call from my dad 
to call her to tell her to pick him up from the airport. My dad and my brother were on a road trip in another country, and my mom had been tasked to uh, tasked with picking them up from the airport. And so my mother sort of sat by the phone that day, just waiting for my dad to call. Um, she knew roughly around what time the flight would land, and so she got ready and she just waited. Um, but the phone call never came. She waited hours and hours and hours, and the phone call just never came. Um, about Eight or so hours later, the phone finally did ring around 6.30 in the evening. And my mom, assuming it was going to be my dad, of course, was about to give him a piece of her mind mm. um, because she sort of thought, okay, well, obviously the flight was delayed, but at least he could have called me to tell me that um, and save me all of this worry. But the voice on the other end of the line was not my dad's. Um, it was the voice of an extended relative. Um, and the voice basically said to my mom, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead and we don't know which one. And in that moment, as you can imagine, everything in my mother's life completely froze. Um, so many thoughts were racing through her mind. I mean, you know, she describes it, and I think this is the best way to sum it up. She describes it as an emotional earthquake. Um, and, you know, she actually got on the next flight to Nigeria, which is where the road trip was taking place. And on that sort of six, takes about six hours to go from London to Lagos in Nigeria. And on that six hour flight, she literally had no idea who she was going to be burying in her family, whether it was going to be her husband or her son. When she arrived in Nigeria, she was told what exactly happened. Um, my dad and my brother were traveling from a place called Enugu, which is where we're originally from in the sort of southeastern part of Nigeria, going to Lagos, which is a six-hour road trip. And somewhere along um, that drive on the freeway, the man who was driving them swerved into the opposite lane to cut around traffic. And as the car went around the bend, it, it hit a blind spot and it was crushed by a speeding tractor trailer. Everyone in the car was killed instantly apart from one person in the back seat where my dad and my brother were sitting. And our relatives in Nigeria at the time, you know, a lot of them in our village were told that, you know, there was this car crash and everybody had died. And then several hours later, they were told, different parts of our family were told that actually there may have been one survivor. And so this is 1988 in Nigeria. Obviously, there's no cell phones. People are very confused within our extended sort of wider family. And there's a lot of arguing back and forth because different people had heard different things at different times. And so they were literally still in the middle of trying to sort of work out the facts when somebody eventually decided to call my, my mother and tell her what happened. Um, it turned out it was my dad who had passed away. My brother ended up in hospital for a very long time. He was severely um injured. And because um, the sort of emergency services who arrived on the scene, initially just looking at this sort of accident, initially assumed that everyone um, was, you know, everyone had passed away. Um, all of the passengers were taken to the morgue. And it was only when um, the driver who was carrying these passengers to the morgue arrived at the morgue and began unloading the bodies that he realized that uh, my brother was actually still breathing. And so the reason why I wrote this is because one of the questions I've always been asked my entire life is how on earth did your mother do it? How on earth did your mother, you know, this sort of widowed immigrant um, living in London, without much money, living in a neighborhood that was beset by poverty and crime, um, you know, no sort of connections, you know, living in more or less sort of a quite kind of a lonely existence. Um, how on earth did she go through all of that and still manage to raise you, a CNN anchor, your brother, an Oscar-nominated actor, my brother who was in the car car crash and who survived, um, ended up being nominated for an Oscar for starring in 12 Years a Slave. Mm -hmm. um, she will tell Edgio for. Yeah, correct. One of my, my favorite actors, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, you're raising your sister, who's a doctor, and your eldest brother, a successful entrepreneur. How on earth could a woman who went through that manage to emerge um, so sort of resilient and, um, you know, I wouldn't say unscathed, but really sort of managed to raise such successful children. And so it was only when I became a mother myself um, 
when I turned 36, which is the same age my mother was when she got that phone call, that I really began to truly understand just how remarkable um, what it was that my mother had achieved and, and also the gravity of really what she went through. When you're a child, you look at somebody who's 36 and you think, my gosh, that's so old. Um, but when you turn 36 yourself, you of course realize just how young it is. And so it took me, it took me a while to sort of really sit down um, and truly, I mean, I was five years old when my dad passed away. And so a lot of the memories I have of that time is, is very, very hazy. And I remember sort of thinking to myself, um, even at that age when my dad had died, I remember thinking, okay, I understand that my dad is dead, but I just don't understand, you know, why he's not home to play with me, you know, mm -hmm. in five-year-old mind. But um, as I grew older, it was really then that I began to truly appreciate just everything that my mother had done for us. And I just think that a story like this, because I, I'm, in every chapter, as you know, I outline the different sort of parenting strategies um, that she used just to sort of help us live up to our best selves. And I just think that this story can inspire and bring hope to so many people because trauma comes in so many different forms um, and it touches every, almost everybody's life. And um, this is this is really, although it starts with with tragedy and, and a really difficult period, it is ultimately a story of hope. And that is yeah. what I want to share with the world. Yeah. So, so I, I want to go back to these kind of early, I guess, weeks and months after this horrific tragedy happens uh, to your to your family, because I think that is that's kind of where the the seeds get planted for how people will move on from that point. Uh, you know, uh, something like this happens, and of course, there's this outpouring of response from from people uh, close to you, sometimes from from strangers who who recognize uh, the the importance of that moment. But then there's always this point where you have to just go back to living your life. And of course, your life doesn't look anything like it did before. Um, and so how you kind of piece things back together in, in, in that period, to me, always strikes me as the, 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 the critical turning point that, um, that you, you decide what you're going to do, what you're going to be, and how things are going to look uh, in your life. And I know that you were very young when, when this happens, but I want to get you to talk just a little about what you remember about that period, the things that your mom did or said that set the tone for this opportunity, essentially, that, that, that all of this becomes in terms of uh, hope and, you know, a life that, that isn't defined forever by that tragedy? Well, I mean, here's the thing. After my dad died and my mom came back to London, um, we all came back to London after the funeral, it was um, a very, very painful period in our lives. Um, my mom would literally just go up to her bedroom, lock herself in her bedroom, and all we would hear was screaming and crying on the other side of the door for hours and hours at a time. Um, you know, she would come downstairs, she would sort of make sure that there was food for us to eat, um, and then she would just disappear. It, it really did feel as though we didn't really have a mother or a father for a while. My, my, my parents were the loves of each other's lives, and my mom and my dad had met when my dad was 16, my mom was 14 in Nigeria, just before the Biafra war broke out, you know, um, the civil war in Nigeria. And um, they were inseparable ever since. And so my dad was the only man my mother had held hands with, ever kissed, you know, she, she, he was literally her everything. And they they had decided to just embark on this adventure by moving to Europe, moving to London, when my mom was um, sort of late teens, early 20s. She was basically just a kid. And so my dad was her life, you know. Um, and so when she lost him, it was, I mean, she just, she just couldn't really cope, um, especially at the beginning. And anybody who sort of knew my mom back then knew that to be perfectly honest, my mom was quite demure. She was quite quiet. Um, she was the type of person, I, I write about this in the book, that was 
kind of, you know, I would say too shy often to look a stranger in the eye when she spoke to them. And so people sort of thought to herself, people thought to themselves, you know, this tragedy is going to break this woman. You know, she's not strong enough to be able to raise her kids through this kind of, you know, devastating experience. And, you know, initially they were right, I would say. Um, The big turning point for my mom was when my oldest brother, Abinze, ended up being expelled from school because he was 14 years old when my dad passed away. And, you know, he also is going through this um, sort of uh, experience of not really having a mother or a father. I mean, he would leave the house and nobody would ask him where he was going and he wouldn't tell anyone. Um, You know, he used to be growing up a straight A student, but suddenly at the age of 14, and obviously 14 is such a tricky time, Um, for boys because you're transitioning from boyhood to manhood and you know you need to have a sort of stable father figure in your life um, through that to help you navigate through that which my brother obviously didn't have have. Um, and so he ended up rebelling in school uh, getting into fights uh, screaming at teachers insulting them he ends up getting expelled and my family and my mother rather being you know a Nigerian immigrant the main reason why you move from Nigeria, from your home country to the West is to give your children a better education. That is it. Hmm. And so for my brother to be expelled from school um, was a big wake up call um, for my mom. My grandmother also came to England to stay with us for a while to help us navigate through that period. And my grandmother said to my mom, listen, you know, we all loved your husband. He was an amazing guy, you know, and we are we are devastated for you. We're so sorry for your loss, but you cannot neglect your children anymore. Like, you can't do it. Like, mm-hmm. your children need you through this. We understand that it's a difficult time, but, you know, enough is enough. You have to make sure they have food to eat. You have to sort of, you know, take care of them. I was starting school at that time. I was about five years old. Um, and so I ended up going to school like a few weeks later than than everyone else. But my mother, with my eldest brother being expelled from school, that was a bit of a wake up call for her. And, you know, it, it wasn't just the fact that he was expelled from school. It was also that he was hanging out with the wrong crowd and the streets were becoming much more alluring to him. So that is when my mother decides that she is going to, especially as she helps my brother sort of try to find a new school, she decides that she's going to make discipline, structure, and routine a dominant focus Mm. in her home. And it starts off as simply this way of just helping my eldest brother just get back on his feet, helping him live up to his full academic potential, especially as he begins to start a new school. But then it expands into sort of like a way of life for us. Initially, the first thing that she did was she started um, a a family book club where, I mean, I was very young at the time. I was only five years old. So I didn't didn't really participate with my older brothers. My my mother would give me sort of um, children's books that we would read together. But ultimately was for my brothers, whereby she would um, bring home um, some of the classics, you know, books by let's say, Rudyard Kipling or Mary Shelley or, um, you know, Jane Austen or whatever. And um, she would make them read it. And um, at the end of the week, usually Fridays after dinner, they would have to discuss what they read around the dinner table. And this is just sort of a very small step in the right direction for her, especially with my eldest brother. Um, And then when it came time, you know, time for me, um, I remember when I was seven years old, I was also having a bit of a tough time in school. I felt like I didn't fit in. And I also felt that, you know, I just, um, the teachers, um, while they were wonderful, I I just didn't feel like when I went to school, I I ever got any kind of any attention or, I mean, it was just a sort of um, a lonely period for me as well, even as a seven-year-old. And my mum went to a parent-teacher's conference and um, my teacher sort of explained to her some of my um, troubles, including me not doing my homework and that sort of thing. And um, my mum asks my teachers for my school syllabus for the entire year. She looks at my school syllabus and she figures out what I'm going to be learning in school in, say, a month or two. And she decided that she was going to teach it to me ahead of time beforehand so that by the time it came up in school, I would have already mastered it. And so we would she would come home from work. She worked as a as a, as a pharmacist and she'd come home from work and um 
you know, in the early evenings up until quite late, we would sit there and she would figure out, okay, you're going to be learning your times tables in three months. And we would go through it together beforehand. And so every single time <laughs> something <laughs> new came up at school, my teachers were suddenly really impressed with me because they thought I was a genius because suddenly I, I knew everything that was taught in school. And it had a profound impact in my relationship with education and my relationship with going to school. I used to dread going to school even at that young age. But once school became a place where I received praise and accolades. I remember being, you know, lauded in front of the whole school for, you know, I think it was something to do with me, me being the best student at, you know, my times tables or later telling time or whatever. I would get all these gold stars. And I remember school becoming a place now where I really thrived and I really enjoyed and it fueled my desire to go home um, with my mother, study some more and do better. And it was the first time I understood as a child that what you put into something is what you get out. Mm -hmm. And so it completely changed my relationship with school. That was a big turning point for me. And, um, you know, people, my teachers thought this girl is so smart, but it wasn't that I was that smart. It was literally just that my mother taught me everything ahead of time beforehand. And so my grades, we didn't really have grades back then per se, but how well I was doing in school just dramatically improved. And so the book is filled. Every chapter has a different little tidbit, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of how my mother raised us that really changed our lives. Yeah. I'm talking with Zane Asher, a host on CNN and author of the new memoir called Where the Children Take Us, How One Family Achieved the Unimaginable. We're talking about the ways in which tragedy causes us to respond, to respond in ways often that take us to new places, to raise us to new heights and inspire us to do things better, perhaps, than we did before. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Where do you find hope in moments of despair? Where do you turn for strength or energy or inspiration when you feel like uh, the chips are down and maybe you're out of luck? Uh, what do you do when life throws you really immense challenges? Tell us about a moment where, uh, where life challenged you and you rose to the occasion and decided that things could be better. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Zane Asher, and we will get to you on the phones and on social. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Zane Asher, a CNN host and author of Where the Children Take Us, How One Family Achieved the Unimaginable. That is her memoir. Tells the story of how her family rebounded from horrific tra tragedy a long time ago uh, and has gotten to the point uh, where it is thriving. How did they get there? What did they do? Uh, what did her mother in particular do to respond to the loss of her father, the sudden loss of her father? Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and tell us about how tragedy has uh, forced you to do things differently, to think about things differently, to maybe go in a different direction uh, and end up in a place that maybe you never imagined. Uh, what were the things that you took advantage of? What are the things that you drew on to get to that new space? Uh, as always, 
The number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to, to, to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the show that way. Let's start today with Nakia in Livonia. Nakia, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hello to your guests, too. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Go ahead, Nakia. Okay. Um, I was just telling um, you guys that, you know, for me, I my tragedy was when I was 45 years old um, last year, I got married and got pregnant. And um, at 23 weeks, I had um, developed COVID um, and was intubated in a coma for a week and hospitalized for two months. Oh and goodness. at the time, wasn't able to have any visitors. So I was alone, scared. I was um, eating through a feeding tube. I, I couldn't talk because I had a lot of damage to my vocal cords and had to have three surgeries on them and um, had to breathe out of a trach for six months. And um, wow. And although I had this horrific thing that happened to me, um, when I came home and, and even all the stuff that I had to endure afterwards, I just realized how every single day is a gift. And you're only going to have this one day to be, you know, and to do, you know, every single day. Mm. And I just realized that now. I realized that, you know, it's not guaranteed that I'm going to be here to wake up and, and hang out with my kids or see my husband or talk to my mom. So I'm much more aware of that. And that's me. Mm. And so um, I make sure that I do that in my so, so Nakia, I mean that—that's an incredible story, uh, and I—I am really uh, just astonished uh, that that you're even able to to tell us about it. But, but tell me about what it was that that allowed you to keep going. But, but also tell me what things are like now. I mean, uh, you're here. You're telling this story. Um, have things? gotten to a place where they are better for you and and uh, where you have a new child in the world and uh, and and your family is is moving forward so um, I say in my previous life um, I was um, an occupational therapist for 20 years and I would work with patients my joy always came with helping people to get better be better do better mm. and I would always, have conversations with my patients about learning how to rewrite your story. Life is always an ever-changing thing. I would remind them that just because this thing happened to you, don't let it define you. And so I had to really think about that myself. And so even like to this day, I've had to have um, a job where I'm not able to use my degree at all. But I'm working now. I just started working last month. And I'm very proud of myself. And my children are very proud of me because, because I was able to go back to work. It didn't matter what capacity. They see me claw my way back, and they keep me going. So I have a daughter now who's going to nursing school because she helped, you know, change my trach and, 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 and clean me up every day. And she found joy now in taking care of other people. And I have a daughter who's much, much more aware of other folks and really intuitive with people and how they're feeling and when they need help and, and that type of thing. And so I feel like all wasn't lost. If I had to suffer to make them better, I'm okay with that because I made some really incredible people who are gonna do some good things in this world. I just think it's so I just think it's so beautiful that you know you went through that particular trauma and you didn't let it break you. It sounds like um you've become much stronger 
as a result. And, you know, when you first got on the phone, you talked about this idea of seeing every single day as this beautiful gift. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, because Buddhists have this... um, belief, this idea about turning poison into medicine. And that's sort of a very kind of Buddhist philosophy where you go through something that is difficult and you try your darndest to make something out of it. How did you pivot um, and sort of change your mindset towards not allowing this particular difficulty to break you and, and sort of, you know, changing your perspective about life and viewing it as much more of a gift? How did you get there? Um, I think, again, I kind of go back to my training as an occupational therapist. I was always trained to be um, holistic in my approach to taking care of people. And I just knew it was people who needed to see me, people who needed to hear me, people needed to watch me get better, be better, do something better. And so... That's what I wanted to do. That's how I had to do it. I couldn't sit around and let this become my story. It was Mm -hmm. just a chapter. And I just, I always felt a sense of purpose to other people. And I I felt like I owed that to other people. A lot of people, a lot of people prayed for me. And a lot of people loved me. And I just wanted to be an example. So. Yeah. I'm really glad you called and what an inspirational story. And of course we wish you all the best uh, in, in the future. Zane, uh, uh, listening to her tell that story, I wondered how, how familiar maybe it sounded to you. I'm thinking of your mother the whole time I'm listening to her um, talk about coming back from tragedy, coming back from, uh, from the unexpected. Yeah, I mean, listening to Nakia, um, and thank you, Nakia, if you're if you can still hear us for um, sharing that story. I mean, I, I've often wondered how people um, find that inner strength. You know, obviously, there are many times in our lives where we go through something difficult, and it sort of crushes us, and it completely sort of, um, you know, devastates us, and it overcomes us, um, so to speak. And there are other times where, you know, that fighter spirit, um, that sort of inner instinct um, to keep on and to fight through difficulty, be it extreme trauma, be it grief, um, be it health problems, um, just sort of rises to the fore. I've often wondered where that comes from, because I think that within that is really, um, it's just such, I mean, she talks about this idea of being there for her children. And I just think that her children looking up to her and seeing that level of resilience is going to be extraordinarily inspirational to them as they grow older, as it is, as it was for me and my siblings seeing my mother, um, you know, because there is obviously that that knock-on effect. One of the things that my mother did for us um, when we were kids that I think is loosely related to what Nakia was talking about, just this idea of seeing other people who are strong around you. She talked about this idea of being an example to others through her strength. One of the things that my mother did, I mean, when we were younger, um, obviously being black children in, uh, you know, in minorities in a society where few people looked like us, especially in school, mm-hmm. uh, and we dealt with racism, of course, and, and just sort of not feeling like we fitted in. One of the things my mother did for us was she would go through um, the newspapers and find um, newspaper articles about black people, especially if they were West African, um, who had... Um, who were not only just sort of thriving and doing well in their chosen fields, but who had really overcome something in their lives. Oftentimes she would find these articles um, about black people who had overcome something and soared, who had, you know, surmounted odds. And she would cut out these articles and she would plaster them to our walls. So we got to see when we came home, just image after image of not just black people who were doing well, but black people who had um, achieved the unimaginable, um, who had, you know, gone through something extraordinarily difficult and emerged victorious on the other side of that. And so that really um, impressed my mind with this belief that I could do the same, you know, no matter my circumstances, no matter the fact that I, you know, had a difficult childhood and, you know, I 
I obviously grew up with a single mother and we didn't have much money. And, you know, I was experiencing racism and all, on all sorts that the people in these articles were just like me. And if I worked hard and had the same level of belief that they did, then I could achieve what they had. And, um, you know, what he is talking about in terms of just being an example to others in the book, I call these people uplifters, but in my language, it's uh, we refer to it as Ndi Ejiamatu, which means those who set the standard. And that is what my mother was trying to do. The same way that Nakia is sort of trying to be an example to those around her, my mother found these so-called examples for us. Um, and it really helped us sort of, it really helped us transform the way we perceived ourselves. And so I think that does have a massive impact. Yeah. Uh, I also wonder how much your mother's early life prepared her to, to, to respond in the way she did um, to, to, the, to the tragedy of, of your, father's, um, your father's death. She comes of age in the 1960s in Nigeria when it's not a great time in, in that country either. It was a pretty, pretty vicious and brutal civil war going on. Um, talk about her coming of age, I guess, uh, at, at that point and how that steals her really for, for the life that's ahead of her. Yeah. So for those people who don't know, the Biafra war was one of the most, um, vicious, um, civil wars, mm -hmm. I would say in African history for sure, but maybe even, uh, across the world. Um, one of the sort of key factors in the Biafra War was, yes, you know, it was uh, part of the country, the eastern part of the country where I'm from, wanting to secede from the rest of the country and the rest of the country saying no. And of course, you know, there being a war, just like there was at one point in the US. But it's this idea that what made it more brutal was the fact that starvation was used as a weapon of war. And so the part of the country, there was a blockade where part of the country where I was from, there was just simply no food coming in. And that meant that my mother had to eat snakes to survive. And it wasn't just my mother. I mean, pretty much if you find anyone today who lived through the Biafra War, which was 1967 to 1970, um, they will tell you stories of having to eat lizards, having to eat crickets to survive. And my mother, my mother's mother, my grandmother had this rule, which was um, never, ever finish your food. Whatever you found on your plate, be it, you know, crickets or lizards or a little bit of yam or a bite of rice, you never, ever finished it. Because given that you had no idea when your next meal was coming, mm. it would behoove you to save a portion for the next day. And so that is how my mother lived. And because my mother was the oldest um, out of her siblings, it was her job to make sure that the rest of the family didn't die of starvation as so many people did during that time. The Biafra War, in just, in just almost, just under three years, two million people died of starvation. Um, because they're just, even, you know, with people just eating anything that moved, there simply wasn't enough to go around. And so my mother's job, especially in the early part of the war when there was some food, was to sell, um, you know, yam or cassava in the markets. And they would have these markets at night because they had uh, planes, enemy planes flying overhead. So they would have the markets at night. And it happened, um, it, it so happened that one day when my mother was selling food, selling cassava in this in one particular market, um, there was a massive explosion and machine gun fire raining down from overhead. My mother was just a teenager at the time, but she fled into the bush and she looked back at just utter carnage. I mean, people that she had been um, doing commerce with, people that she had been speaking to just moments before lying lifeless on the ground. And that is um, incredibly difficult for a sort of 15, 16 year old girl to sort of come to terms with. Um, but on top of that, her younger brother, who was about eight, nine years old at the time, Arthur, um, who was asthmatic, who struggled to find um, medicine during that time, but there was also no food. Um, he died during the war. And so um, that was a difficult part of her life as well. So um, that particular period for her 
Also, she wasn't in school at all. I mean, nobody went to school if you were in the eastern part of Nigeria because all schools were shuttered. They were closed because of the war. But my mother had a difficult childhood from that perspective. But I do think that that is in part where some of that inner strength and some of that resilience came from. And after my father passed away, that inner strength that she built as a teenager going through um, a different kind of devastation really came to the fore. Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Zane Asher about her book, uh, Where the Children Take Us. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Call and tell us about the ways in which tragedy has inspired you to a different life, to do things in a way that you might not have imagined before. Uh, Tell us what things you draw on to respond to tragedy, the things that you use to keep going even when the worst things are happening or have happened to you. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Zane Asher, CNN host of One World with Zane Asher and author of Where the Children Take Us. We are talking about that book, uh, which came out in April. It's a memoir and really an homage to the strength and resilience that Zane's mother showed uh, in raising her children after her husband died suddenly uh, while she was a newcomer to the UK from Nigeria. Uh, We're talking about how tragedy shapes us and how tragedy defines us. Uh, Does it define us in solely negative ways or are there things that we draw from tragedy uh, that make us into different and sometimes stronger people. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Let's go back to the phones here uh, to Alyssa in Livonia. Alyssa, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Um hey. Yeah, I was listening, and, you know, what a story she has. And I just thought I'd add it kind of a different thing, but I had had a a suicide attempt in 2003, was kind of lost before, didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, ever since I recovered from that, it was like a springboard to, you know, achieving. And I ended up going back to school and I got a master's in social work and I'm working now very successfully and I've never been happier in my life. Mm. And while I don't recommend that path, it just was my path of bottoming out and really rebounding. So, yeah. So, uh, so you were, you were a young, a young person when this, when this happened, um, I, I surmise at least. Uh, well, talk not about... really. I'm no. 61 now, oh, so it okay. happened when I was like 40s. <laughs> okay, okay. So, but talk about the things that you drew on and the people, I guess, that maybe you you leaned on who who helped you mm-hmm. move in a different direction. Well, I had I have a terrific family, and they're very supportive. And I had a sister, especially, who's a physician that was very nurturing to me afterwards. And, you know, my family was great. My friends were great. Um, but, yeah, it was just almost like when I came out of that, it was like kind of a, like a rebirth kind of thing, not like religious stuff. But it was just a, tons of energy and focus and positivity. And really, I, I couldn't be happier than I, I mean, it's. I am very happy with my life now, and I sure the hell wasn't. 
was it like was it like a light bulb that just came on or was it a process of coming out well that's that's a good question um i mean i had a lot of therapy and stuff but it was almost it was almost like maybe a few months after i kind of recovered physically from that because it did affect my thinking and stuff but it was just all of a sudden it was like i can do whatever i want i can do this i can do this you know and i just was so motivated so i guess it was kind of like a light bulb that is so inspirational yeah Alyssa, i love that you called and shared that story and also being so open about it, because I just think that when it comes to depression and mental health, a lot of people don't open up about it. But the fact that not only did you um, get through it, but that you're able to share the story so openly, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people listening will find that that really inspiring. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Zane, I, I do want to talk about uh, your career and the ways in which, I guess, as, as a journalist, um, the familiarity with tragedy um, changes the way that you see the things that we end up covering. I think uh, it's not uncommon, of course, in our business to have people who who come from that kind of uh, background and are, I think, uh, are able to understand uh, some of the things that they're covering or they're writing or talking about because of that background. How does that, how does that play out for you? I think it definitely um, has given me a lot more compassion. You know, I remember working in local news and um, this was a long time ago. And, you know, oftentimes it's this idea of, okay, you know, this person's son has been killed. Can you go and knock on the door? And half of the time, I'd say most of the time, I just couldn't do it. Mm. So at the end of the day, I mean, yes, I'm a journalist. Yes, I'm a reporter, but I'm a human being first, you know. And so I remember trying to wriggle out of those types of um, those types of stories and just not really feeling comfortable because I could too put myself in that same situation that the woman who has lost a husband or lost a child, I mean, that in a sense was, was my mother. That was me, you know. And I know how I would feel if the next day a reporter came to my door. And so um, that was something that I remember very clearly at the beginning, just really just uh, having my stomach churn at the thought of doing. When I started at CNN, I started in business news. So um, a very different, um, a very different ball game because you're talking about the jobs report, you're talking about inflation, you're talking about um, how stocks are doing it. It really isn't that um kind of news. And so um, I think that, you know, that was a big adjustment for me, but I definitely would interview people who had gone through something, um, something distressing um, and who were really affected by it. And it would, it would affect me, you know, um, because as I said, you know, that, that person is a sense, is in a sense, especially if they've lost someone, I see them as, as me in a way, you know, I've been there. And so um, um, that was, that was part of the, uh, job that was that was hard especially mm. at the beginning yeah um, yeah so you know i i also um in your brother's work um uh I, you know i i i i see i think uh some of the same kind of resilience and familiarity with tragedy uh not just in uh, 12 Years of Slave, but uh, I, I, I really enjoyed him in American Gangster and, of course, in, in yeah. The Martian as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm actually a really, really big fan of his. He's oh. one of my favorite actors. Um, but there is this, this presence that he has that I, I think you spot when, when um, you see somebody who's, who's drawing on something that is painful and complex that you know, he's, he's acting, of course, on the screen, but but you can sense that there is something very real behind it. Yeah, I mean, for Chuatel, um, you know, he was in the car when my dad passed away. He was there. I mean, he was literally the last that that spoke to him, had a conversation mm-hmm. with him. He was 11 years old at the time. And, um, you know, my brother was also sort of presumed dead initially and um, taken to a morgue. And so 
you know, I think that that experience, even when you're 11 years old, changes you. I mean, it changes how you view life. It changes your um, willing, your, your ability to experience the full range of human emotion. Um, and when you're an actor, that is something that you draw upon. I mean, if you are pretending to be somebody else, you still will have to learn how to experience real emotions as if they were your own. And I think the reason why um, he is, he does have this sort of amazing stage presence is because he has really experienced life. You know, he has um, been through something that is incredibly harrowing and that gives you depth, that um, gives your emotions a certain level of depth. You know, he is extremely passionate when he's on stage. And I just, you know, there there is a link to what he experienced when he was 11 years old and, um, you know, how he sort of, channels all of that pain and all of that grief and all of that trauma into some of the characters that he plays you know yeah. it's it's there so yeah. yeah you can absolutely see it okay uh, uh zane asher it was really wonderful to have you here uh, to talk about your book and to talk about uh, tragedy and our inspiration from it thanks so much for joining mm-hmm. us on detroit today Stephen, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to talk with Linda Villarosa about her new book, Under the Skin, which explores how systemic racism affects individual health outcomes. Really important intersectional conversation uh, on Detroit Today on Monday. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.